0: Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hi everyone, this is Tom Salemi and welcome back to a very special OIS Podcast. We're coming up on an anniversary on July 30th, 2014. I hosted my first OIS podcast. I sat down with Jim Mazo, chairman and CEO of AccuFocus, and of course, OIS conference moderator extraordinaire. Jim always uh, moderates our final panel of the day. And with that interview, which went really well, we kicked off the OIS podcast, and we've been visiting you every week, delivering uh, some great insights on the innovative side of ophthalmology, We've talked to the heads of big companies and small, talked to VCs and physicians. It's been a great ride for me, and I'm so happy to see this continuing forward. Next week, we're going to take a look at some of the uh, more popular uh, OIS podcasts. We'll revisit uh, excerpts from the podcasts that have registered uh, as most popular or most listened to by our OIS community. This week, however, I'll uh, share one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, I had the opportunity to sit down with Mark Blumenkrantz, of course, a physician and entrepreneur who's had many great successes. Uh, he was involved in the very recent success of Oculeve, which we uh, covered last week in the OIS podcast. I, I thought uh, Mark and I uh, just had a, a very free-flowing conversation. I enjoy so much talking to entrepreneurs who are really passionate about new technologies, so that was just one of those conversations that, uh, that felt like you were sitting next to someone at an airport bar uh, who just helped you kill a three-hour uh, layover uh, in the middle of somewhere. So hope you enjoy uh, this revisit of the OIS podcast with Mark Blumenkrantz, and tune in next week when we'll hit upon the more popular OIS podcasts that we've brought to you this past year. Mark Blumekrantz, thank you for joining the podcast.
1: Well, you're very welcome. It's good to talk with you today, Tom.
0: I, I'm, I have the good fortune. I've been covering VCs and entrepreneurs for first time, and I've had the good fortune of speaking with many. And, and, and I'm kind of blown away at the, at the range of companies that you've had uh, some level of involvement in, in starting. Uh, Oculix, Peak Surgical, Optometica, Avalanche, Macusite. Now Digicite is another you're involved with. It's, they're, they're, I'm, I'm impressed by both the, the, the breadth of areas in which they cover because some are ophthalmology companies and some aren't but also uh, you've been involved with device and biotech and now digital health uh, how do you uh, is there a common thread to each company that you can sort of point to that got you involved in the creation of that company or is entrepreneurship entrepreneurship sort of no matter what what type of company or what technology you're working with
1: you know I think I'd say to you that that the the common denominator is an unmet need Uh, I'm a practicing clinician you know as well as a a, a healthcare administrator and so
0: as you see patients
1: uh, as you talk to your colleagues that are seeing patients you come across areas where people just aren't doing very well either the outcomes aren't good or the process isn't good or it's it's very costly Uh, and so you're constantly struck by gosh isn't there a better way to do this now the thing I think the second part to that is that you're aware of things that are going on around you. You know, maybe not in medicine, uh, maybe in technology, maybe even in you know business process design or whatever. And you and so you take those two and you couple them together. This unmet need, because everything starts with an unmet need, always not with the technology, in my view. And then you couple that to either a different, usually a different or a new way of. Of thinking about things, and I think that's really where the opportunity is. Everything else tends to occur at the at the margin, you know, better, faster, cheaper. Um, but I think, you know, people use this very overused term, uh, disruption. But but disruption um, is really you know a powerful world word, and it's a powerful concept. And I think that's the key. If you can find areas where it's truly possible to disrupt the way people are doing things, uh, then you're not. You're not going out just to fight for market share with this, you know, a longer duration of action, slightly longer duration of action or greater 10 or 20 percent greater potency or 15 percent lower cost. You're really trying to to make meaningful change. And that's to me, that's the thread.
0: Do you have a long list on a whiteboard somewhere of ideas that you want to pursue or is your mind more selective that uh, you you know, when you come up with an idea, you're fairly certain that it's going to turn into at least something that needs to be proven to be successful or or tested until it fails.
1: You know, I do keep a list of things and, and, and I typically don't act right away because I think, you know, there's this expression that truth is what stands the test of time. Um, I think I keep them and I, um, um, and I let them rattle around and I, I sort of pressure test them over time. I might talk to a friend or two about it, or someone I trust, or a patient, or, or a physician, and then I look at the technology solutions that you could apply to that particular problem. And if I don't see one, then I um, I uh, think about is there something I can think about to do it, or that is, do we need to invent you know a solution, or can we can we do some technology transformation, you know, out of one. Period to another, you know, from dermatology to ophthalmology or from general surgery or from ophthalmology to uh, microvascular surgery, that sort of thing. Um, uh, but I think that I try not to act on things right away because every new idea sounds great at the time and, and if you sleep on it for a night or a, a month or a year, um, you realize that there are things about it that you hadn't. Uh, Considered adequately, or there are new developments, and 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 stuff that stays in my mind for a while, um, I start exploring more seriously, and and then I then obviously I look for people that I think can help me, and if I don't have the right people available uh, to execute on it, I'll I'll hold back until uh, I do, and sometimes other people come up with solutions, or that 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 problem gets solved, or. It just seems less important, but but I think you have to have a list of things uh, that doesn't. That's not to say that that uh, you know that there isn't spontaneous ideation. You know that you have an aha moment, and I've had those. I think that I remember a couple of them. I remember the the moment when I uh, started really seriously thinking about whether femtosecond lasers could be used for cataract surgery. It was a very specific um, uh, time and and uh, but but more often than not, I think it's a slower i think it's a slower evolutionary process
0: looking at your your list of successes some of the companies I named earlier are uh, uh, were some of those ideas that sat on the whiteboard for a while unexplored and just let it, let them marinate in your head or or were more of them sort of the the aha things that just took took a life of their own once they were conceived and once you got involved in them somehow
1: you know I think some of them were aha moments and I, I think some of them were um, were more evolutionary. Um, for example, I think Optometica had been in my mind for a long time, the idea of having placing multiple spots uh, on the retina because it was so tedious to apply single spots. But I didn't have quite the idea how to do that and I thought about different ways to do it using uh, beam splitters and, and um, uh, a variety of prisms and so forth. Um, or multiple apertures from a single source, but when this when the scanner idea came uh, to me, and I thought about how that might be applied from other disciplines, you know, people were using scanning lasers in dermatology, they just weren't using them um, in certainly in, re- in the retina world or in the cataract world, and so I remember when that came to me, um, that that seemed like an aha moment, and 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 I think the same thing was true for avalanche when we were thinking about uh we were working on ways uh to develop uh, traditional gene therapy you know replacing defective genes um and uh and um i realized that we might be able to use that same approach to um uh to not necessarily uh, produce to to, re- to replace defective genes but to uh, generate drugs in vivo and that's you know that would be you know distinct from let's say you know devices that were producing proteins and so that was that was kind of an aha moment in this idea of the biofactory I remember sitting down with Tom Schalberg together over lunch when we sort of uh, I guess together um, formulated that idea that was that was more than uh, that was nearly nine years ago now and and yet you know it it incubated for a long time way under the radar I mean to say the least and and it's gotten a lot of um, I guess Um, uh, press recently within the last year or so but that was a period of very long slow you know i would say arduous and frustrating uh, development uh to sort of i think in a way sometimes um you have to take a long time to try to convince people and sometimes you just have to wait for other people to do some of the lifting too and and so it it becomes more a, a matter of of uh, the timing being right, not necessarily whether you had the right right idea when, but rather uh, a time when people are more receptive as opposed to less receptive. Gene therapy had a bad reputation for a number of years, coming from some of the disappointments and some of the the, the sad stories that occurred a number of years back. And so, I think that's an example of of not not rushing things, but you know, everything having its time and its place.
0: Do do you still enjoy being involved in an avalanche or an optometica toward the end? Is it still sort of your baby, and you get jazzed working with it, even though it's not a new idea anymore that needs to needs your direct involvement to survive?
1: Well, that's a great question. You know, I mean, I think I enjoy it all. To be honest with you, I think I enjoy most uh, the very early stage development when you're. It's basically a you know, a white space that you're working in and you and you can dream and think sort of crazy thoughts and some of them end up being crazy and some of them aren't so crazy uh, as you sort of play them out. So that's kind of the most, that's, I would say, the most creative uh, component of entrepreneurship is the idea of just creating something out of nothing. You know, I think later stage company uh, development is also, very interesting. And, and I kind of enjoy it in a different way. It's more intellectual. It's uh, it's more about how do you take something that's, that works and, you know, making it better incrementally. How do you ramp up sales, improve uh, profit margins, develop second generation products, you know, look at sales channels, uh, think about what the exits um, are going to be. And that's, you know, that's, that's, you know, a very, very interesting thing to do. I, I suppose if I had to choose between the two, it would be easy for me. I'd choose early stage, but I, I'd be, I'd be dishonest if I said that I didn't enjoy the other stuff too, because it's, you know, it's kind of like eating different types of cuisine. You know, whether it's French or Italian or German, they're all, they're all different uh, and uh, enjoyable. But um, maybe too much of a diet of one thing isn't, isn't good. You know, for a lot of different things.
0: Uh, staying on the on the theme of uh, entrepreneurship and in uh, physicians are are physicians any more or any less entrepreneurial than I don't know, other professions.
1: You know, I think that physicians. You know, they oftentimes physicians get a bad rap uh, in the business community because people will say something like, "Well, you're a doctor, stick to being a doctor." Uh, and and to some extent, at least historically, and I'm going to draw I'm going to draw a distinction now between sort of what it's been like for the last 40 years I've been in medicine and what's changing. But I think physicians are actually very skilled business people, but they tend to run small businesses. They, you know, people would go out after you graduated medical school, put up a shingle, you know, hire a receptionist, hire a nurse and then build a practice. And, you know, some people would scale um, to pretty large multi, you know, specialist practices and other people would stay as a single provider. And I think they, um, and in doing that, I think they're entrepreneurial. Finding the right location, deciding where you know, second office is, you know, whether to add, you know, certain new techniques or products or procedures and so forth. And so I think that's I think that's fundamentally entrepreneurial. Now, medicine, in fact, is changing a lot. And, and in fact, most people now practice in group practices. And I think a lot of physicians um, don't need business skills anymore, or don't develop their business skills. Um, but I would say that. Uh, physicians are potentially good entrepreneurs. They're not necessarily people that run very large, you know, large scale organizations. Uh, and I think that's true. And I, I don't know that the physicians as a group uh, for the most part, and I'm, now I'm speaking really generically here. Um, obviously individuals are different. Don't necessarily have all the financial engineering, you know, marketing sales and, you know, HR uh, skills that go into uh, building and running businesses. But, but I think that they're, as a, as a group, they're smart. Uh, they're well educated, um, and they and they have been taught how to think. Uh, that's
0: so. a that's a great point, though, about the the practice ownership. Uh, I don't think it's hit ophthalmology as hard as it hits some other sectors, but clearly more physicians and more surgeons are working directly for hospitals. Do you see that ownership hindering uh, entrepreneurship in a way, in that creating new ideas, uh, be, maybe because they're not working for themselves anymore, they might be less motivated to to have coffee with a venture capitalist and and talk a, a new idea. Or maybe are they more likely to do no, that? No, I because... think they're
1: no. I, I think you bring up a great point, Tom, and I think they're less likely, and I think it's a major risk um, to the field uh, as people become, I guess, more and more employed, salaried workers that show up, and I don't I want to, I don't want to say punch a clock, but but are very much part of a you know a cog in a larger wheel um I think it does it does you know limit the time and the inclination uh to be able to sort of do a lot of creative independent thinking now, now I would say here's the caveat um you know I happen to be an academician, and uh and so i i think that you know uh at various times in um uh, the uh the if you will the secular business cycles uh such as in medicine um uh, uh, th- things are either more or less in favor, uh, and I think there have been there have been times when I've been I've been I've practiced on both sides of the aisle, if you will, uh, in the private sector, um, and also in in universities. And I one of the reasons that I actually moved back uh, to the university uh, a number of years ago, and back to Stanford, was my desire uh, to do to engage you know in creative you know a lot of creative work and. and you know, Silicon Valley was appealing to me. It wasn't the only reason I came back to stanford. but But, I would say that, that that's where academics uh, now has a decided edge in my view. Um, if a, if a person uh, was you know inclined to try to become an innovator uh, while still practicing medicine, I think it's much easier uh, to do that in an academic environment for a number of different reasons. That wasn't always true by the way, and it still isn't true in all academic institutions. but Stanford, I think it has a long, uh, rich tradition, and it, it's very much embraced here and in fact cultivated. In fact, uh, one of the projects I'm working on right now, uh, literally today and the last month or so, is uh, we have funded a, a program, a fellowship program in ophthalmic innovation at Stanford in the department, and we intend to try to attract the best and the brightest uh, to come to Stanford. Not with the idea of training in retina per se, although they may have already trained in retina or, or glaucoma, but rather to come here either before or after that training, and then to learn about how you would uh, become an innovator or an entrepreneur. Um, uh, and you know, we have a world-renowned program in the, in the uh, School of Medicine and Bioengineering in the Department of Bioengineering uh, that was founded by Paul Yak and with some really fantastic people, uh, Tom Crummel and Todd Brinton and a whole host of other people, Uday Kumar, uh, that actually uh, is a formal uh, program of instruction. Uh, it's called biodesign, and people come in usually with mixed backgrounds. Some are physicians, some are bio are bioengineers, some are electrical engineers, some are computer scientists, You know, some have worked in industry, and, and they spend a year um, basically learning in a very practical way uh, how how do you innovate uh, and, and learning that, in fact, uh, innovation is not an outcome. You know, People talk about I'm trying to produce innovation, uh, but innovation is a process, and it can be taught to an extent. I, I do believe that people have different levels of innate uh, talent or proclivity to do that, but I think you can teach anyone about the innovative process, and I think if you take a person that has, if you will, the native talent and drive, and I think it is a lot of it's drive, uh, kind of a dissatisfaction with the status quo, and then you provide them with these tools, these very concrete tools, you know, how do you uh, identify an unmet need, the the so-called identify, invent, and implement, that's the biodesign approach, and then talk about how these are sequential linear steps um, where you go through, you know, when you start with 50 or 100 possible ideas, and you cut it down to 12, and then you get it down to three, and then you get it down to one, and you do that on the basis of, you know, traditional business skills as well as medical and scientific skills, you know, technology risk, market risk, uh, um, uh, regulatory risk, and uh, uh, size of the market, you know, and so forth. And after you've done all that and then you do a little prototyping, uh, you may very well have either a product or maybe you have the basis for a company. I think another part of that whole process is understanding that difference. You know, sometimes an idea is just an idea or maybe it's a license or something. And sometimes it it requires that you go out and form a company and attract people and raise a lot of money. But, you know, each and every case is different. And I think part of the whole beauty of, you know, of teaching this, if you if you can teach it, is to try to help people to understand you know, uh, which is which.
0: Well, what is the name of this program again, and why is the emphasis on ophthalmology? Is this an area that uh, you see a lot of potential, or is it an area that you say needs the help and needs needs a, a program like this to give it a jump start?
1: Well, of course, the biodesign is across all disciplines of medicine, uh, but in, we plan to offer a specific program, uh, fellowship program, there's no certification body per se, um, you know, for ophthalmic innovation, and to the best of my knowledge, there, are, at least, I'm not aware of any, you know, specific fellowship programs in in ophthalmic innovation. But, you know, we're a, you know, we're a relatively large part of the innovation ecosystem now. You know, if you look at, uh, you know, which types of which areas are being funded the most, you know, looking at the SVB's analysis, ophthalmology is right there in the top three in terms of funded deals, new state, you know, early stage money. Uh, you know, along with oncology and target generating platforms, at least in uh, in biopharma. So, so it, it goes without saying that it's not a small niche. And that you know, if there were people, I mean, you can get that experience in the real world, in in, in the real world of hard knocks, or I guess you can get an MBA too. Uh, but that's still very different uh, than actually taking something and making it with your hands. You know, and uh, and having people around you that have done it before. And they can, you know, help guide you without necessarily constraining you. Um, and so I think it's, you know, I think that's, I, I view it, if you will, as, a, as an innovation, you know, in, in innovation and, and carrying on um, sort of in the tradition of the, that was really started by biodesign here. And it influenced me greatly.
0: Great. And, and last question, I opened this conversation mentioning all of your successes I'm sure you didn't succeed every single time. What was the most uh, valuable failure you've had?
1: You know, it's interesting. Uh, You know, people talk about the differences. You know, even culturally in the in the business climate between, let's say, the United States and Japan or something. And I think part of it is is that failure is not looked at as a uh, a, uh, you know a scarlet letter on your back. I think people look at it as a kind of a learning experience. My first company failed um I, I started it when i was in my late 30s i did it in in um, michigan in not a very good uh ecosystem uh for uh, at least medical innovation and we, we funded it we produced we brought a product to market and but i i think in many ways uh i underestimated uh, the complexity involved of really building a company making sure that uh, in in that case the uh when I was a, it was a product for people with uh disabilities um, vision dis- disability using speech input and speech output to help to to help uh, improve their lives and we had been counting on the American the ADA the American Disabilities Act which was before Congress uh, at that time and it was and it had created a funding avenue or at least a, a likely funding avenue. Uh, for the, uh, for companies that were trying to build these things. Well, at the very last minute, there was an amendment or a rider. I don't remember all the details, but I remember how painful it was. And they decided to exclude sensory aids, but to include durable goods. So crutches and wheelchairs and ramps and so forth were approved, but uh, hearing aids and and uh, things that, improved, that uh, assisted people with sensory de- deficits were not included, and it, and it completely blew up the whole economic basis for the company and it became apparent to me I couldn't sustain it and we had to close it you know to that point in time that was uh, the most painful experience I'd ever gone through professionally for sure uh, disappointing my friends and people in the company and and you know essentially if you will failing Not maybe not failing in the sense that we we did bring a, a product to market but failing in the sense that we had a sustainable business and so I learned a ton from that um, you know I learned humility you know, um and i also learned that you can't count on everything um coming the way you think it's going to come you know including acts of congress uh but i think in doing that it it also taught me to to be able to sort of evaluate risk and to try to to take control of as many variables as i could and not to rely upon things that you weren't sure uh, would come through let's say like a cpt code you know creating a new cpt code or Assuming because doctors are hard to change in their ways, you know, the way they practice medicine and so just assuming that you've got a better way to do things doesn't guarantee commercial success you you have to be able to communicate that message and I think I learned that in a lot of other things. So I, I would encourage everybody to fail. I think the mantra around Stanford is to fail fast, but not necessarily fail often. Um it, um, so, I guess I would, I I take that away, and I think anybody who says they haven't failed probably hasn't succeeded, because uh, I think, I think in a way you need to fail to be able to succeed.
0: That's a great way to end. This has been a successful podcast. Thanks to you, Mark Blumenkrantz. Thanks for taking the time today.
1: Thank you. Enjoyed it very much, Tom.
0: Well, thank you for uh, joining me uh, on the stroll down memory lane. I thought that was a great conversation with Mark Blumenkrantz. Again, I really admire his work and enjoy his perspective on innovation in life sciences. So please uh, tune in next week for the uh, recap of the more popular OIS podcasts, And of course... Join us at the upcoming OIS in Las Vegas. Uh, If you are leading a company that you think should be on stage, go to ois.net, fill out the forms, and we'll see you there. If you would like to attend and watch these innovative companies and these ophthalmology leaders speak uh, to the future of this sector, go again to ois.net and register to attend, and we'll see you in Las Vegas. OIS is now accepting applications for presenting companies. Share your technology and clinical data with over 800 industry executives, investors, and key opinion-leading ophthalmologists. To be considered for the Ophthalmology Innovation Showcase, apply online at www.ois.net forward slash application.